The topic of, of this sermon is counting the cost. And we can start from the gospel reading from Luke. Jesus says, For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Or the king going out to wage war sits down first and considers whether he's able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. I think of Ukraine and Russia. In our case, as Christians, Jesus makes it clear that the cost may involve the cross. It may involve the loss even of our lives. In all these cases, it looks as though Jesus is talking about looking ahead, about long-range planning. How does this passage fit with the Sermon on the Mount on the lilies of the field? There Jesus seems to forbid long-range planning altogether. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. He says we're not to run after these things, and he ends, so do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. We need both these two passages together. If God asks me to do something, I need to think through what it's going to require. Jesus is not in the Luke passage telling us to build a tower or go to war. He's interested in our frame of mind if we're called to something. We need to be prepared for the suffering it may bring. In the Sermon on the Mount, he's telling us not to run after material possessions, what we're going to eat or drink or wear. These are not our calling. God will provide those things as we need them for the projects God does call us to in the service of the kingdom. And when God calls us, God wants us to be ready to think through those things we will need as we carry those projects through. Then we should ask for them, and God will provide them. So we need both. Both the freedom from material baggage, so that we can hear the call and leave whatever it is we're doing. And the diligence when we're called to carry it out carefully and well. The frame for both of these thoughts 
is given in Psalm 139. You are acquainted with all my ways. For you yourself created my inmost parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. There are thoughts like this in the readings from two Sundays ago, from Psalm 71. Upon you I have leaned from my birth. It was you who took me from my mother's womb. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. And Jeremiah 1.4 Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. The point in these passages is that God knows us and has a plan for us throughout our lives from the womb to the tomb. This is not a sermon about abortion. But the psalmist and Jeremiah in these passages say that they are in God's hands throughout their lives, in the womb, in their youth, in their maturity, and in their old age. And God has a plan for those lives. But this does not mean our lives contain only sweetness and light. God is outside time, as I think, and sees all at once in the eternal present all the things that we do and that happen to us within time. Some of those things are not sweet at all. But God sees the shape of our whole life with the good and the bad. Here is an analogy for God's knowledge of us from our experience of listening to music. A piece like Beethoven's Third Symphony, the Eroica, can have a shape. And the shape is not itself in time, though the performance is in time. There's that extraordinary place in the first movement where the tension builds and builds and the dissonance is almost unbearable. And then there's a sudden silence, what one critic has called the loudest silence in musical literature, and a quiet new theme reminiscent of a chorale comes out of the silence in a completely different key as it were, out of the blue yonder. And then that theme is integrated into the original thematic material of the movement, and the movement ends with resolution and homecoming. 
if we know the piece, we know that this rhythm of tension and release is already the shape of the movement, even though we hear the movement in temporal sequence. We humans do not know our own lives in the same way that God knows them, or in the same way we listen to Beethoven. We do not already see the destination as God sees it. But because we have faith in God's goodness and love, we have hope that the destination is a good one. And it makes a difference to how we experience our lives if we have that hope. I want to give you two examples of this. The first is from my wife Terry's battle with cancer. She used to read every morning a devotional called Our Daily Bread. And she used to write notes in the margin. I have been reading through these. A couple of months before she died, she wrote this. My fear of not knowing how and where my cancer is progressing. Relief just came because my Lord does know. He knows. It's not hidden from him. Terry had the conviction that she was in God's hands and that God loved her. And this gave her relief and it gave her courage. Here is a second example. It comes from the mosaic behind the altar here at St. John's. Sarath Cummings, who was our rector 15 years ago, used to say, there are many crosses as you look vertically from the apex of the ceiling down to the floor. Some of the crosses are obvious, but there's one in the middle that needs thought. It's in the outstretched arms of the young Jesus at Mary's knees. The artist wants us to see that Jesus is already in the posture of crucifixion. Mary knew something of this. Simeon had told her at the beginning, a sword will pierce your own soul too. And Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. When I was walking the Camino in June, one of the small village churches had a striking image. The boy Jesus, about eight or nine years old, 
the age of my grandson Rory, with his arms out and behind him a wooden cross. I think Jesus knew the shape of his life, though perhaps the details became clearer to his human mind as he grew older. And he knew this involved his dying for us. There's a mystery here about how Jesus' human and divine knowledge related. But at least when he set his face steadfastly towards Jerusalem, he knew that his hour was coming, the hour for his death. I think he also knew that this was not the end, not the destination. And he knew that even though the death would be horrible, the destination was victory over death. Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and the shame. We're not divine like Jesus, but we have the divine with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. I think the Spirit is telling each of us a story about our own lives, like a counselor giving hope to a patient in trouble. We understand things, and especially our own lives, primarily through stories. Thus the philosopher Charles Taylor states, a basic condition of making sense of ourselves is that we grasp our lives in a narrative. In order to have a sense of who we are, we have to have a notion of how we have become and of where we are going. But the story the Spirit is telling us is not merely descriptive. It does not tell us merely where we have been, where we are, and where we're going to be. The story is normative or prescriptive. It tells us where we should now be, how our history has pointed towards this, and how this is a trajectory to our destination. We may not be at the present in the place where this story says we should be. And the destination may be obscure to us. But the Spirit gives us a foretaste. We're marked already with the seal of the Holy Spirit, which is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people. I think that as the Spirit tells us the story, we get hints of what we're going to become. Sometimes this is through the negative, the temptations we're called to resist because this tells us about our characteristic weaknesses 
that we need to work against if we're going to become the people God wants us to be. Sometimes the hints come through the positive. We see that because we are just the people we are, we can do good kingdom work with and for the people providence has placed next to us. Some features of the shape we're being called into will be common to all followers. They're what Reverend Ellendale called last Sunday, the marks of maturity. But some will be unique to us, unique ways of loving God that come out of the details of our individual lives. We get a better sense of this shape as we get older and we hear, as it were, themes coming back and finding resolution, as in the Beethoven. But we can and do get the story wrong. We can think we're headed in one direction, and then it turns out we're not. This shows that the story is not simply our own construction. We need to ask the Spirit to tell us as much as we can take in of God's story about our divinely intended shape. And we need to ask for ears to hear it when the Spirit tells it. It's not always easy to hear. I want to ask two questions about this idea of a story and then I will come back to counting the cost. The first question is whether there's only one path prescribed for each of us or whether there are alternatives. When I was growing up, I read a Victorian children's book called the Gold Thread, originally published in 1861. The story is about a young prince, Eric, who's told by his father that he has to keep his hand at all times on a gold thread that is invisible to all except him and that will guide him back home if he gets lost. Alas, he's disobedient and leaves the thread in order, I quote, to chase butterflies and gather wild berries and amuse himself. He gets lost in a dark forest and ends up imprisoned by a robber chief. Because he is sorry, he's given a second chance and a beautiful lady tells him that his father has given her the gold thread and that it's the only way to save him. So Eric kneels down and prays, and when he gets up, there's no one there but himself. But he sees an old gray cross, the gold thread tied to it. He follows the thread through many adventures and ends up at a door. The thread is tied to a golden knocker shaped like the old cross in the forest. Eric seizes hold of the knocker and knocks on the door, 
and immediately a thread breaks and vanishes. They don't write children's books like that anymore. <laughs> In this story, there's only one thread, and it's necessary. This strikes me as wrong. I'm not talking here about whether Jesus' death is necessary for our salvation. I'm talking about whether there's only one possible path for each of us towards that door. I think, by contrast, there are lots of possible paths. We can lose one good path through our own fault or the fault of others, and there can be another good path waiting for us. But the gold thread gets three things right. The first is, there's always a way to get from our current situation to our destination. What is our destination? I think we are called to enter into the love that is between the members of the divine trinity. As the medieval Franciscan Dan Scotus puts it, we are to become co-lovers of God. There's a way to this love, even if we have put ourselves or been put by others into a horrible situation. We do not have to despair that there's no way given where we are now, to reach that destination. The second point is that because God knows us better than we know ourselves and loves us more than we love ourselves, we can trust that the story we are given by the Spirit about that way will be for our good and will fit who we uniquely are. This is true and this is the third point, even if the story takes us through suffering. The gold thread is attached to the cross, both in the middle and at the end. Why is this? It is because human power exercises itself on human bodies, and human power is corrupt. We sometimes have to enter into Jesus' sufferings, as he reminds us in today's gospel, and we have to take up our own crosses. But the cross is not the destination. It's part of the path. Now the second question. Can we change the path by our own choices? Or is the choice only God's? Here we enter another of the mysteries of the faith. What is the relation between our agency and God's? Any answer we give to this question is going to have trouble with understanding either sin or divine sovereignty. I'm not going to try to solve this here. 
But I have the conviction that Calvinism, though right about many things, is wrong about irresistible grace. That is to say, we can and do resist God's offered gift of grace. We're given the free choice of life and death, as Moses said to the people of Israel in our first lesson from Deuteronomy. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. But if our heart turns away, we get death. And sometimes we do choose death. But you may say, how can we have this freedom when God already knows what we're going to choose? Here, Augustine is helpful. In On Free Choice, he argues that God's knowledge does not by itself mean God's causation. God could, because of divine sovereignty, cause everything we do, but God freely chooses to allow our agency to be part of the causal chain. Augustine says God does this because God wants our free worship. But when we choose badly, God can still produce eventual good, even from the wrong we do, as God did in the crucifixion of Jesus. This is an item of faith and not sight. We sometimes do not see how there could be any eventual good. Sometimes we choose badly and God brings good from the wrong that God did not will, but we willed. Does this mean that the good is always second best? This does not seem true to human experience. I was at one time engaged to be married to someone and she changed her mind and married someone else. It was devastating. But I then fell in love with Terry and this time I succeeded in getting married. Does this mean the second time was a second best? I don't think so. The marriage can be as good or better than the other one would have been. In terms of the idea of a story that the Spirit is telling us, perhaps the story contains a gold thread we lose and then another equally good or better thread is graciously given to us. It's time to close and go back to the idea of counting the cost. I think we can understand this better if we think about the Spirit telling each of us a story about our lives. We have to listen for this rather than controlling it or constructing it ourselves. But this does not mean we're entirely passive. We're not only the clay and God the potter. 
our hearts have to say yes. What I try to do at the beginning of each day is to read something that puts me in touch with God. And then I think through all that the day is probably going to bring. And I try to listen for what the Spirit is telling me about this day, how it relates to the story the Spirit is telling me about my life as a whole. Sometimes what the day is probably going to bring is meaningless or heartbreaking. But the psalmist says, even when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I need fear no evil, for God is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Dear God, we ask you to help us listen to what your spirit is telling us about the shape you want for our lives. Please help us to hear and then to live into it. In Jesus' name we pray.